why? Why do I care about mental health? Well, because I've been running student-facing resource centers for the past decade, right? And I have sat with students in some incredibly dark times, and I've worked with administrators to change these policies, to set up systems to make our campuses more navigable, less violent, less harmful. Um, and, you know, sometimes you're successful and sometimes you're not. But as practitioners, what we are always able to do is just be there and be present and be that, you know, staff member in a particular student's life who believes them when they tell you who they are. Hello, welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Heather Shea. Today, we are re-releasing an episode that we first dropped back on December 15th, but one that has gained many views and listens since then. In the episode, you will learn more about a recent collaboration between the Jed Foundation and the Consortium of Higher Education LGBT Resource Center Professionals. This collaboration resulted in a groundbreaking report and resource guide for high school, college, and university administrators to better support the mental health of the LGBTQIA2S plus students in their schools or on their campuses. I was thrilled to talk with three individuals who helped write the report. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com, on YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We are launching our first ever listener survey. If you could please take a moment to share with us what you like and what you are looking for in the podcast, that would be just amazing. At the end of the month, we will draw three names and send out uh, copies of our Student Affairs Now mug. If you can just please scan the QR code or click on the image on the screen. Or if you are listening, go to tiny.cc forward slash SA now survey. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity, a true partner. Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data driven decisions. This episode is also sponsored by Leadershape. Go to leadershape.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. As I mentioned, I am your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am broadcasting from Okemos, Michigan, near the campus of Michigan State University. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you so much to the three of you for joining me today on the podcast. I am thrilled to be able to talk about this important report and share this with our audience. Um, can we begin by each of you telling us a little bit about your pathway into the work that you do um, and maybe a bit about how you got involved with this project? Um, and I'm going to start with you, Jesse. 
Great. Hi, Heather. I'm really excited to be here with you. It's fun to find little ways we can still connect. Um, so hi, folks. My name is Jesse Beal. I use they, them pronouns. I'm currently the associate director for the Spectrum Center at the University of Michigan. We are currently celebrating our 50th anniversary, uh, which is a very big deal. We are the first LGBTQIA2S plus center in the country. Uh, my previous role was as the director of the gender and sexuality campus that are at Michigan State University. Um, which is where I know Heather from. Um, but I am here in my role as the external coordinator for the Consortium of Higher Education LGBT Resource Professionals. Um, the consortium has long been my professional home uh, doing work on, on campuses to support LGBTQIA2S plus populations. So I think I'll stop there and kick it over to my friend Chris. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Woods. I use he and his pronouns. I serve currently as the director of the NYU LGBTQ plus um, center, um, which is one of a number of hubs within the Office of Global Inclusion, Diversity and Strategic Innovation, which is the university's um, primary area of focus on global inclusion, diversity, equity, um, belonging and access. Um, my kind of career to this point has included a long uh, stint um, or a long involvement with the Consortium of Higher Education LGBT Resource Professionals, which is why I'm here. I primarily work with Sophia to kind of set up the partnership between JED and uh, the consortium and was a part of the project throughout. Um, I was the former internal coordinator for the consortium. Um, in terms of my career, I've been um, in LGBTQ plus higher education work for what feels like my whole life. Um, from being an undergraduate student worker at the NYU LGBTQ Plus Center to having uh, my first full-time job be here at the same center um, to now being the director. Um, I've worked at jobs in between, but it's been really special to be at a center and see its kind of evolution um, in my tenure. And we're actually celebrating our 25th. So um, also another momentous time, not as nearly as long as 50, but um, I'm really glad to be here. Um, and thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Sophia, welcome. Heather, I'm Sophia Pertus and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am very privileged to have worked with the consortium on, on this project. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional with over 25 years. I started out in higher education, then the nonprofit world, and now I'm in corporate. Um, so while working on the Proud and Thriving Project, I served as the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer and Senior Advisor at the JED Foundation, a nonprofit that protects the emotional health and prevents suicide for young people, which we'll share more. Um, but I currently serve as Managing Director for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Billie Jean King Enterprises, which is an investment consulting and marketing firm that puts Billie Jean King's philosophy and brand value at work, capitalizing on her long-standing advocacy for equality. So I'm thrilled to be here and I can't wait to talk more about the Proud and Thriving Project. Yes, and we will absolutely um, share a link to the report in our uh, show notes today. Um, but before we divide, dive into that content, I would love to have our audience know a little bit more about the organizations and this important work that you do. So Sophia, can we stay with you for a moment and you tell us a little bit more about the Jed Foundation? Sure. Um, the Jet Foundation is a nonprofit organization, like I said before, that protects the emotional health and prevents suicide for our nation's teens and young adults, giving them skills and the support they need to thrive, not just today, but tomorrow. Um, and we do that by partnering with high schools, colleges to strengthen their mental health substance misuse and suicide prevention programs and systems. Many of you might be familiar with the Jed Campus Program 
or JED Fundamentals, the newest program supporting higher education institutions, or you might have heard us on uh, other new program, high school, um, JED High School. So we work closely with administrators, um, educators, and counselors to really think about how to best support um, and create comprehensive systems where any student can go to anyone to really be supported in their mental health um, struggles. So. Right. One of the things that we asked, and that this is not on our, our question list, but what does JED stand for? And it's not an acronym, correct? No, Jed is actually the son of the founders, um, uh, Jed Satow, who died by suicide um, when he was a, a college student. So the, the parents um, did create a, the organization to be supportive um, of higher education and just to find out more about what can colleges do to strengthen their systems and really not let anyone fall through the cracks. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I should um, say Donna and Phil Satow. It's like, I know their, their names are right at the top of mind, but Donna and Phil yeah. Sato are the founders and, you know, they're very involved in the organization and wanted to make sure that no one um, suffered like they did as, as parents to, to really know that colleges are looking out for their young people. Great. Um, Jesse, tell us a little bit about the consortium. Sure. So the Consortium of Higher Education LGBT Resource Professionals is a members-based organization that is committed, dedicated uh, to serving and supporting all LGBTQA plus uh, members, everybody, everybody at a university. Uh, but basically, we serve and support folks who are doing LGBTQA plus inclusion work on campuses, right? And so we are actually a nonprofit and we are a volunteer run organization. Um, we do a lot around membership engagement. Um, we do a lot around education and professional development. Um, one of, I think the most important things we do is we provide social and community support spaces for folks who are working on campuses. So we often are the helpers, right? We're the folks who are supporting LGBTQIA 2S plus students, faculty, and staff as they navigate campus. And that can be tremendously hard, especially as many of our offices are offices of one, right? Um, and so we are there for each other. And I think for me, that is the most rewarding part of the consortium is knowing that you are never fully alone in the work because there are people across the country who are invested in the liberation of LGBTQA plus people as well. Chris, you have been a member of the consortium, as we say in the South, since God was a child. Um, it's true, not entirely, but um, anything you wanna add that I may have left behind? Um, not much. I mean, it's also been a major professional home. Jesse and I have known each other a really long time. Uh, yes. But yeah, it's been my professional home in many ways since I was an undergrad student, being mentored by amazing folks doing the work across the country. Um, I think another thing that we do as an organization that I'm really proud of is um, guiding documents like the one that we partnered with Jed on um, that outline a number of best practices for practice policy, um, uh, inclusive systems and things like that. So um, that's another area of, I think, pride for the consortium of mine. Um, yeah, it's a great organization. Yeah. I totally agree, Chris. Thank you so much for adding that. Great. Um, yes, I feel like both of your organizations are alive and well at MSU. And so thank you for all the work that you're doing to support um, uh, both my work as well as the, the work of other administrators at MSU too. So, um, so talk a little bit about how this collaboration came to be between the two organizations. Sophia, talk a little bit about who supported this work, um, who contributed 
and maybe a bit about how you gathered uh, data. So it's a whole long list of things. So I'll let you start. Okay, no problem. Um, so three years ago, I, I came to JED and one of the first projects that I worked on was the equity and mental health framework, which the JED Foundation had um, worked on with the state fund. And that was geared towards supporting the mental health of students of color on college campuses. So I remember um, so many schools found it really helpful to have some actionable advice and recommendations, um, but I felt like we're still missing um, the LGBTQ plus uh, student population and looking at, we know that there's intersectional identities, but I thought that there should be a dedicated set of recommendations and research done. So we started even internally, it was great to have the support of our CEO, John McPhee, and he's like, let's, let's go ahead and see who you can get and gather to start the conversation. And there were internal folks at the Jed Foundation who um, just were really supportive. And the, one of the first people that I reached out to was Dr. Marin Greathouse, who at the time was at the Tyler Clemente Center um, and had worked on a white paper where um, there was data that was put together for the first time from all types of higher education. We, we collect a lot of data in higher ed, but sometimes synthesizing and pulling it together is, is the key. And then the next part is the action. So she was involved early on, uh, Hofstra University professor, Dr. Genevieve Weber was also very supportive. She works with um, Sue Rankin and Associates also. So we talked about um, how climate survey sometimes has info. So how do you, again, bring that together? And the, of course, we reached out to Chris Woods, who at the time um, was one of the coordinators at the Consortium of Higher Ed LGBT Resource Professionals. And we thought, okay, this is a group that is specifically working uh, through things with students and being supportive. And we're hoping that this is the group that not only knows the data, knows the information, but also knows what kind of resources they need so that when we did put together the recommendations, they can, they can chime in. So we had a few folks there. I already mentioned Chris. You meet him today, and then Jesse Beal, um, the, Dr. Demir Woolway, Dr. Emma Linda McSpadden, there were a few folks. And we wanna make sure we say everyone's names and acknowledge because there was a lot of work and review that went into it. Another group that funded the project, and we were so excited about that about a year ago, was the Upswing Fund for Adolescent Mental Health, who provided major funding for this project. And then we had the Healthy Minds Network, uh, over at the University of Michigan, Dr. Sarah Ketchen-Lipson and Dr. Sasha Joe, who both were looking at the data, um, five years worth of uh, collected data from the Healthy Mind study. So we, we looked everywhere and then we had conducted some of our own research. Um, I have to acknowledge uh, Dr. Amy Green at the Trevor Project who helped us with the survey part of this. Um, decision Analyst was the, the firm that got the survey out. We wanted to survey students, we wanted to survey administrators and mental health professionals. So we were able to get a cross-section of, of both and we did focus groups. Um, uh, Sigifredo Mora and a few others helped us with the focus groups. And then two last people that we'll mention as part of this project were Dr. Angela Batista. She's the CEO of the Batista Consulting um, Services who helped us really keep this project together and, and um, brought her knowledge of overall higher education resources and really pulled everything together for us. And then finally, I have to acknowledge the primary author of all of our, um, all of our publications. Uh, Dr. Marin Greyhouse started our literature reviews and worked extensively on them. We have two different ones, um, but Dr. Reese Kelly, who is the CEO and founder of Embodied Values, really brought the heart and soul to the, the full document and brought a lot of data analysis and synthesized it into something that is very readable, 
very easy to relate to and hopefully a, a great resource that people can go to over and over. And it's all on the website, which I'm sure you'll post as part of this podcast. Um, and I already mentioned the, the surveys, the focus groups, and then the, and which were collected between May and June of this year. So we were able to capture some of the angst and, and issues from being home and being in hybrid situations and being remote and what stress, uh, additional stressors that, that caused. So it was great. And the Healthy Mind study from the past five years. So that was a long answer, but it was pretty extensive and a lot of people involved. And I hope I didn't forget anybody, but it, it was truly a, a collaborative um, effort for sure. Wow. I am... I am absolutely blown away. That is definitely like a who's who list. Um, and I will also say incredibly quick turnaround to gather data in May and June and produce a document of this nature. Um, I really hope that this podcast helps get the word out even further uh, about this really important resource. So thank you so much for the dedication of, of all the people who you named, but specifically for the, from the three of you too. Um, so one of the things that I, as a scholar and as a, a practitioner, I love seeing you know, resources grounded in the literature. And so Jesse, could you talk a little bit about um, that process of gathering literature? You know, why are there two separate literature reviews? Um, and then we'll get into a little bit of the background and kind of what that literature consisted of. But tell us a little bit about the two bodies of literature that you all uh, drew upon. Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't mention this earlier, but I'm also a PhD student in the Higher Adult and Lifelong Education Program at Michigan State University. Um, and so there's two literature reviews, which for me, as someone who studies LGBTQIA2S plus folks in higher education, it's just like amazing. Right. Growth. It's, uh, exactly. Growth. Like it's it, it's like they threw me a party, but it's in two separate literature reviews, right? Um, I'm it was so thrilled when they were released. And I, we do really have to give so much of the credit uh, to Dr. Marin Greathouse and Dr. Reese Kelly. Um, they were incredible in this process and pulling all of this information together. So we have two separate uh, literature reviews. The first one is for LGBTQ plus folks, right? And the second one is for trans and non-binary identities. Now, part of the reason why there's a division in liter the literature reviews is because there's a division in the literature, right? Uh, where one is about sexuality and the other one is about gender. And we tend to think about LGBTQIA2S plus identities as being monolithic, but there is no one story of what it is to be queer or trans. Um, there's a ton of variation, of course, across lines of race and class and disability, but also within our communities, right? Um, within the acronym, if you will, right? Um, and so the first literature review was very much focused on sexual identities, right? So what it means uh, to have and hold a sexual identity that's considered to be marginalized, right? That is marginalized uh, within our school systems, within higher education, right? And the second one really focused on trans and non-binary folks. Chris, is there anything you wanted to add to this? Oh, you that was beautiful. Okay, well, thank you. Chris Sophia. likes to compliment me, which makes us very, very good friends, right? <laughs> so. Much deserved, much deserved. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So Sophia, tell us a little bit about some of the um, highlights and a bit of the, about the background of the, um, the literature in which, in, where, in which this is grounded and um, some of the specific risk factors that you all named. 
I would say there's lots of really great scholars that are working on this. And, and just like Jesse said, it's all in different places. So we we knew we had to bring in mental health. We need to bring in um, higher education, retention, all the different things that, you know, people who are educators are worried about. Our students adjusting, our students able to be their full selves and show up authentically. So we drew from different places to bring it all together. So that's why there's two very long literature reviews. And But I, I, I think anyone who is saying, I don't have the info, I don't know the language, or I don't know how to continue to find the info has zero excuse. If they go to the Proud and Thriving Framework website, there's different um, links there. And in the links, even within the both um, the, the two frameworks, I'm sorry, the two literature reviews and the framework are even more readings within and names of scholars who are who are working really hard to educate everyone about, about these important topics. So that's the data and how we bring that together. I won't bore you with that, but I do want to talk about what brought us to the conversation in the first place, and they were the risk factors. We want to make sure that um, we're addressing the issues so that we, um, that's the deficit model first is like, what was wrong? What's, what, what are the issues? And we're hoping to end on a high note. And what are the protective factors? We also found those as well, but I'll start with some of the risk factors. And they were things like, so for trans and non-binary students, internalized um, cis sexism, and we introduced language in this report that I hope will enlighten folks to really rethink um, some of the ideas around the way we use words. And one of the first sections is a note about language, which, which Dr. Reese Kelly created, and I think it's brilliant. So please, if you can download and look at that, um, it, it's a great primer. Um, lack of identity pride, looking at ideas of passing and the way that the external factors make us not show up as our full selves and share. Non-discrimination policies that don't specifically call out and name um, sexuality and gender. Um, ideas about bullying and how that shows up. Gender Not having gender segregated facilities. So for example, restrooms that are well labeled, locker rooms and, and housing choices for, for young people who are just trying to figure things out. I think the more expanded the choices are, the more um, people don't have to choose and don't have to, it doesn't have to be a conflicting issue. So some of those risk factors, not easy to solve, but they're definitely there. And we know that they're a struggle for, for young people. Um, for overall LGBTQ plus students, uh, we found very similar things, Inter internalized heterosexism, monosexism, um, not finding the examples of themselves in the classroom. So faculty and curriculum that just excludes and does not um, have a full sense of everybody who is, is part of the, the campus community. Um, so those are a few, there's so many. Lack of resources, obviously, uh, staff and administrators and mental health practitioners who just do not have the knowledge, the language, or the um, training. That one was very clear, the data for us. Um, and that was self-reported. Some of the practitioners who are like, I just don't know the info. I have no idea. So those are definitely some of the risk factors and barriers to engaging with, with others and, and invisibility, just not seeing themselves on campuses. So those are a few. There's so much more, but <laughs> I thought I, we, I would just give some highlights. Jesse or Chris, That's any it. that you wanna specifically raise up or, or highlight as important for you and your work? Yeah, I think, you know, 
these risk factors, as Sophia said, are exactly what got us into this, right? When Chris, mm -hmm. when I joined the consortium board, Chris was the person who was the point person on this project. Um, and he was like, you know, Jesse, th this is what you care about. This is your stuff. You care about mental health. Like, please join us, right? Um, and well, why? Why do I care about mental health? Well, because I've been running student-facing resource centers for the past decade. Right. And I have sat with students in some incredibly dark times and I've worked with administrators to change these policies, to set up systems, to make our campuses more navigable, less violent, less harmful. Um, and, you know, sometimes you're successful and sometimes you're not. But as practitioners, what we are always able to do is just be there and be present and be that, you know, staff member in a particular student's life who believes them when they tell you who they are, right? Who takes care of them in the ways that we're able to, like if it's feeding them at an event, right? Or bringing their favorite speaker, right? Um, you know, who trusts them, who honors them, who uses the right name and pronouns for them, you know, who tries um, and shows up and shows up and shows up. And I'm really lucky, Chris, I'm sure this is true for you as well, but, you know, I have students who were in high levels of distress around their mental health who, I, you know, worked with and supported who are still, you know, in my day-to-day -day life 10 years later, right? Um, that we still are close because we went through something together and I got to be the person who moved with them through that dark, dark space, right? That hard, hard space rather um, to something else, right? So I just, I really want to acknowledge, you know, the work that Sophia has done in this project too, because she's right. Like we came to this work because we sincerely want to change the state of mental health for LGBTQA plus youth and young adults. We want to see a change happen here because LGBTQ resource center directors and staff are doing suicide prevention work every day and we need some help from the rest of the institution, right? Chris, anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think what the risk factors highlight or illuminate is um, oftentimes I think there's a tendency, historically there's been a tendency in mental health work to pathologize LGBTQ plus communities and people, right? We know mm -hmm. this, um, or if you don't know this, you got to look that up. There's a rich and long, unfortunate history of mental health work on pathologizing LGBTQ plus communities. And I think these risk factors help to illuminate the many, many ways that these risk factors are not individual. They're risk factors of the social and cultural environments and the institutional environments that these students live in and have to operate within that increase or risk to their mental health and well-being. And so mm -hmm. I think um, what I appreciated about this project was helping to kind of unearth and make really explicit some of these very things that are actually solvable. Um, in many ways are solvable. Some may, maybe not so much, right? Are we going to transform or shift heterosexism and cissexism today? Maybe <laughs> a big task, but can we change a form? Can we change a structure? Can we change a system, a policy? a practice, a resource that we can do, right? And so I think it, for me, it helped illuminate kind of kind of just um, how the risk, how much the risk factors are really rooted in um, things that are external to these students that apply a lot of pressure to their kind of day-to-day -day navigation and world experience. What Chris said just now is like so valuable, right? It is so, so good because so often when we talk about how hard it is for LGBTQA plus students to navigate K through 12 or higher education systems, the response is something like, well, they just need to be more resilient. We need them to toughen up a bit. And 
that's not actually the answer. Like our LGBTQIA2S plus students are tough, right? They have been through it. Being authentically yourself in high schools today is not any easier than when I was in high school, right? They are tough and they are doing what they need to do to live, right? And it's the systems, right? This is an organizational, institutional, structural, ideological problem. And yes, we can all intervene on the individual level to make change, but there's also systems level change. And I really appreciate, Chris, you naming that specifically, because that is something that differentiates this project from other LGBTQA plus mental health projects, right? Um, Because the the problem is not located in this report with our students. It's located within the system. And that is so valuable. So I basically just reset everything that Chris said with a whole lot more so's and ums. But I just wanted to highlight that, yes, Chris is correct. So Gosh. I can add data to this, you know, yeah, back please. to the idea of the, the issues are not with the students themselves. They're, they're students, they're humans, they're people that need help. And sometimes you might hear somebody say, well, why don't they just get help? Go ahead and go. Well, our study found that three and four LGBTQ plus students reported that they wanted to see a professional for counseling in the past six months. 90% are likely to go, but couldn't find any. And then 67% said they had used therapy before. So it's not a group that is shy about getting help. It's just the help that's available is not the culturally competent help that they need. So, and we found that data too. 40% of counselors and administrators said they didn't have adequate training and didn't have the information. Nearly half said that they had not had any, did not feel at all skilled to be helpful to LGBTQ plus students. So to to be able to get that information, people to admit, I don't have what the information, I don't have the training. That's great that we got that, but it's also concerning that we got that because that means that we have some work to do. Yeah, but it's within our control potentially, right? And this is what I love about this. I mean, maybe, right? The systems level, um, what are the levers that we can actually affect change around? And I think within our campuses, we we do have some power. Um, and so that's the other part that I really loved about what you said, Chris, as far as you know, it's not fixing students, it's fixing our institutions. Um, So Chris, I want to turn to you as a director of a resource center. Um, We're going to talk about kind of within the resource center space, how do you intend or see this report being used? Um, And then we're going to look at it more broadly at the institutional level. So um, what have you experienced and what do you hope that this um, adds to uh, your ability to influence that change? Oh, Lord. Yes, I've experienced a lot in this topic. I think, you know, um, Jesse, I think I appreciate you sharing about like holding space for students. I can't tell Mm -hmm. you the amount of times as a director of a center just to sit with a student in in severe distress who have tried their hardest to seek out resources and don't know where to go or who to turn to. And then when resources like these exist, and hopefully they do, and they don't exist, unfortunately, at all colleges or university campuses, but when they do, they can serve as a safety net for many students. But, um, you know, the job of mental health work or even the job of really thinking about a person's holistic well-being isn't, cannot live within a center, can't even live within counseling, right, or mental health professions. It's really an undertaking of an entire institution, really a society, right, to really contend with the risks that we're talking about and then figure out solutions that could support people in their day-to-day experience. And so, 
I think for me, this data just really reaffirmed everything that I experience every day in this work and have been experiencing for the past 10 years. And, you know, I think it, what I appreciate is that it also elevates um, kind of what I, I see all the time and hopefully um, elevates it to such a way that it can really reach the eyes um, or the perspectives of senior leaders in higher education work, um, as well as senior leaders in uh, K through 12 education, I'm thinking policymakers, you know, it has, a, it has the potential to really reach those who have the, the power to influence change um, in ways that sometimes even at a center like ours, um, we may not have that um, agency. Thankfully, in my role, we have quite a bit of um, influence um, since we report directly to the president as an as organization. Um, it really helps us to be able to really leverage our positional location at the institution to be able to kind of inform policies, practices, and system changes, but that's not necessarily what everyone else experiences. So I'm hopeful that it really can be, um, uh, it can really have folks rally around something, really to understand the issues on a national scale, and then hopefully begin to imagine what are the opportunities higher education has to um, support LGBTQ plus students and their whole well-being, right? I think sometimes folks forget that wellness is not just limited to just mental health, right? It's really inclusive of, you know, for example, um, a lot of the work that I've been doing on our campus is focused on how to address misgendering and deadnaming that happens on campus, which is okay. one of the a number of risk factors that exist specifically for trans and non-binary students and their mental health. And so in our work here on campus, we've been trying to reduce that number through systems changes, policy changes, and it's required collaboration with partners across the institution um, and actually very often doesn't include our mental health staff, right? And so, but imagine a world in which students are being misgendered at a rate of zero to like zero to very few cases or instances, how much that might improve their own sense of self on a college campus, the ways in which they feel seen, heard, um, understood um, in the ways that they identify, right? I think there's so much um, opportunity there that we have to really inform or shift a person's experience, right? So I think um, for me, I think there's such opportunity um, for higher education institutions to improve or to shift, um, to um, imagine, you know, protective factors that can help LGBTQ plus students thrive, to thrive. And the reality is that our LGBTQ plus students are coming into college um, at earlier and earlier ages, already having a really strong sense of themselves. Some maybe not, depending on various cultural um, contexts, but Every day I meet students who have stronger knowledges of what pronouns are, um, who know what their pronouns are, how to address misgendering, um, what's the current terminology and lingo. I feel like there's just so many students know so much about the community and about themselves. Um, and we have some catching up to do in higher ed. So I think um, this, this report, I think, is, provides a really great opportunity to start to figure out um, how do we advance. So as we were prepping for today's episode, Jesse, you said some really brilliant things about where centers live in institutions and the ways to influence change. I want to give you that space now, uh, because the way you said it earlier was like so vital that we need to be thinking about positioning our centers. And Chris, reporting to the president, oh my word. Not directly. I'll add that part. Not directly. <laughs> So I report to a chief so. diverse, uh, a senior uh, vice president for global inclusion, um, and who's amazing, um, who reports to the president, but organizationally, yeah, we're yeah. with an office of the president. Wow. 
So I can try and recreate what I brilliantly said earlier, your words, not mine. Um, but I hope Sophia and Chris will jump in if I don't quite get it. Um, I love talking about organizational uh, factors in higher education. I think it's very interesting how LGBTQA plus resources are housed and how different that is depending on what like institutional context they are located in, right? Um, whether it's a small liberal arts college or a big 10 university or, you know, an HBCU, right? Like very different locations, right? Um, so we are often not placed in places to do institution-facing work though, right? Unless we are in a position like Chris's office. Um, we're often placed under student affairs or student life, student services, um, some iteration of that kind of umbrella, uh, which comes with it in the very first part of it, student, right? Um, and our centers often don't just serve students, even though our mission may be explicitly to serve students, because we tend not to have an institution-facing counterpart that is doing institutional change work, we tend to be serving all people, which I found in my last role at MSU was often serving the parents of LGBTQA plus teenagers and you know children right? Because they'd come to a workshop or training and be like, Jesse, my kid is trans. What do I do? And I'm like, well, I can't say you do not fall within the scope of our mission. No, that's another human. I'm going to support them, right? Um, but we are placed in ways that don't necessarily allow for all of us to be able to do the work, right? And often our centers are one person, two person, three person offices, which to do all of the LGBTQA plus inclusion work is impossible, right? It, it, we are structured to fail, right? Um, so we don't have a seat in the table, right? We're under-resourced, right? And we're not able to affect the change we need to make on behalf of the populations that we purportedly serve, right? Um, we cannot also at the same time funnel all LGBTQ everything through this one person shop of an LGBTQA plus center, right? Um, so, you know, we are in a little bit of an organizational quandary. Where do we belong? How are we most effectively positioned? Um, should we be under a chief diversity officer or which is similar to what Chris has um, on his campus, right? Do we belong in student affairs? Do institutional diversity offices need to do more to be supportive of LGBTQA plus um, communities? Um, I think the last one is yes, yes. The rest of them I'll let you think on, but the last one is yes. And Sophia agrees with me. I agree with you. Because you know what? As a as a diversity and inclusion professional that's working with consulting with organizations, I'm finding that people's expectations are higher for their own institutions. So I know that this study was specifically about serving students, but I am a wholehearted as a student affairs professional, faculty member. I wholeheartedly believe that institutions need to also take care of our staff and faculty and administrators because how can they possibly take care of their students if they don't feel affirmed, if they have to sit in spaces where I will tell you one story and I, I won't say where, um, I, I have a friend who is a member of the LGBTQ plus community who was sitting in a meeting strategizing around student support. So it was a great topic, but the president said, oh, I think we're, we're good there with LGBTQ plus, right? I mean, everyone's gay these days. Just things like that, like we're good. We're, we're in a good place. We, are, we have arrived and I'm thinking, if that's true, then why do we have the most legislation that are anti-trans that has come out in the last year than ever? So no, we're not there. 
no, we don't have all the info. And yes, we do need to support everyone that supports our students so that our students can find places to be, be more affirmed and supported. So it's like a cycle and it's a full comprehensive back to the JED Foundation's um, thought process on everyone needs to be able to provide that support so that students can have somewhere to go on campus. And no, it cannot be one place or one center and it can't only be the counseling center either. But we can only do that if everyone is educated and everyone has the, the resources and support that they need. Off my soapbox now. I just, I'm really, so passionate really about <laughs> providing this. I really liked your soapbox. It was a good soapbox. Agreed, agreed. Anytime you wanna jump up there. Um, I am I'm I am absolutely blown away and I really think that the key here is this idea that it's everybody's responsibility. So let's talk a little bit about some of the protective factors because if our learning environments are cissexist, heterosexist, monosexist, what types of protections should we be putting in place to buffer against and reduce the psychological distress? Uh, I'm just going to throw this out to any of the three of you. Because uh, we didn't identify a key pe person to direct it to. So, who would like to take this one? What are the protective factors? We talked about some of them, but. I mean, I could start I... this very. Oh, go, no, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Let's, let's be very. I mean, quiet. just big picture. Um, you'll see that it's divided under queer and questioning um, and trans and non binary protective factors. But if you really thought a little bit, um, even within that, they're really, you'll see protective factors that are more individual-based, um, meaning things that we can cultivate within students to be able to um, have them be, to reduce the risk that they have around their mental health. So for example, things like self-compassion and um, a good sense of like uh, uh, exercise, cognitive flexibility, things like that. And then there's also community-focused um, protective factors, things like having affirming environments, having affirming communities, having spaces that um, with people and mentors that reflect them and their identities and communities. And then there's a vast majority of the protective factors are actually institutional, right? So things that, so the kind of the asset-based version of what Sophia mentioned earlier, which are things like having gender inclusive facilities, having a policy that aligns pronouns and chosen name, um, what happens when people experience harassment or violence? Can, do they have resources for that? Um, that are clearly outlined um, for reporting and things like that. So anyways, I think those are kind of the kind of the buckets uh, in how I understood the report is individual community focused and then institutional. Chris, I love everything you just said. I only want to add two things. Um, and the one is um, one of the parts of the report that really stuck out to me was having a negative self-perception, right? As being one, a risk factor. And then a possible, you know, a protective factor being like, you know, developing a more positive association and more pride in your identity, right? And I, the, one of the best things about JED and this, this particular project is that it took what we already know, right? As practitioners, and it gave it to us in data, right? And so we're like, yes, that's true. And I remember when I learned that as a practitioner, right? I remember when I started changing the way I talked about my identities because my students deserved to have a practitioner with them who loved us, right? That like part of my practice as, you know, an LGBTQA plus uh, resource center staff person was to love our communities, not an exclusion of other communities, right? But to be completely 100% for LGBTQA plus 
plus communities to be unabashedly in love with us right and for me like that i remember learning that and how that was a shift for me and how i approached the work right and the self-work that it took as a practitioner to be able to love everything that we are even the hard parts right um and i really that part like helping our students thrive is about being them being able to realize joy right and imagine joy in their life right uh, to imagine a future where their identities exist and some of that is because of the adults and they are adults too in our case not the k-12 mostly but like in the students that chris and i serve are mostly adults right as well but older adults um, in their life who are queer and trans and non-binary and poly and pan and all of the identities in the world and just living lives right and loving themselves and loving our communities as an act of justice right if we want to go towards cornell west right loving us in public right um and that's so important that's so so important um the second thing i want to say and this is completely different right like so we're going to a little little left turn here um, is institutions, and this comes out in the report too, but institutions have got to do a better job of collecting demographic information on LGBTQA plus populations, right? This shows up in student information systems. This impacts exactly what Chris was just saying around chosen name, right? Um, because it's this, these same or similar systems that feed into each other. Y'all, data on LGBTQA plus populations is critical and it needs to be complete accurate and inclusive and that means your your gender categories cannot say male female other or even male female non-binary it is 2021 it's december of 2021 there are plenty of scholars out there who can help you um, figure out how to ask these questions in a way that uh, communities see themselves and recognize themselves in right um i'll help you I mean, I'll charge you, but I'll help you. I'm sure Christopher would love to charge you, right? Uh, we're here for it. Uh, but we have to get this data because we don't. And it is an institutional invisibilization of a community. We don't even recognize that these communities exist. So how are we going to serve them? The Gallup poll found that 16% of Generation Z adults are LGBTQIA2S+. 16%. These are our students. We don't know if they're graduating. We don't know if they're succeeding. We don't know if they're on probation. We don't know. We don't know because we don't bother to ask. And there are ways in which we can protect that data and that information and ensure that we're actually able to target these kinds of interventions, these kinds of protective factors, right? And while resource allocation is tied to numbers, I'm just going to throw that out there, it'd be really, really helpful to be able to name how many queer and trans students yes. we have on our campuses. Because as long as we don't know, we can pretend that they don't exist. Yes. And we can exist. I challenge you on a national data perspective really quickly? You, you can. So I'd love for you there, to. There are, and maybe, you know, institutions are, I think, sometimes afraid because they're like, I don't know oh, what yes. words to use, what language or what labels. But yeah. there are studies that institutions have been participating in, things like the NESI, the CHIRP, the, name them. There's so many. Um, and that's what Marion, Dr. Marion Greathouse tried to do with the Tyler Clemente Center, write a white paper that says, okay, some of them just started collecting this data like three or four years ago at the time. I, I'm, mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many now, but um, some of this data does exist if you're willing mm -hmm. to look at it. And, and right. that's a pet peeve of mine in higher ed where we collect a lot of info, a lot of data. We even do climate surveys to really figure out what's going on. And then we put it on a shelf when we yep. find that it might be more expensive, too challenging, or just not in the top priority. And I'm going to channel 
my Dr. Yeah. Sean Harper, where he wrote this, <laughs> I, I put it out somewhere, but he wrote the, please stop collecting climate survey data and then just doing yeah. nothing with it because there's no point in doing that. Just don't do them. So there is data sometimes. You're right. Yeah. There isn't when it comes to real student data that's a campus specific one, but trend wise, yeah. there are there is data. No, no, no. You are totally right. I'm specifically talking about institutional data sets, right? Yeah. And that's the ways right. in which gender and sexuality do and frankly do not get captured by our institutions, right? So you are you are totally correct. There are national data sets out there. I would love to get a coffee with you and talk about how terribly they ask those demographic questions as well, because some of them are pretty terrible. Um, but <laughs> specific to institutions is where we run into we run into harm, right? Because we have a student who's not able to say I'm non-binary, right, and then have that them represented within student success data you know, in a disaggregated way, right? Because we do are able to protect certain data sets, including data sets related to disability. And as a person with disabilities, I know that those identities are protected, right? In data sets right. that involve me, right? It could be the same. And that's not to say being queer or trans is a disability because it isn't, but it is something that does need to be protected so that there is no uh, faculty member or administrator who can say, I would like a list of all of the queer and trans students because that is a different kind of violence that we need to make sure doesn't happen. So. Yes. So I agree, Sophia, completely. Yes. <laughs> so Jesse, you've you've jumped into a conversation, you know, or kind of our next piece, I? which is recommendations, which is great, actually, because I want you to, in addition to talking about data, what are in in the framework and in the document, it really breaks down the recommendations by these audiences. And I'd love for you to talk more about some of the specific recommendations beyond collecting and using data because oh my gosh, that would tell us so much about what our students on our campuses are experiencing. Um, summarize kind of what that looks like at the institutional level, other, other recommendations for institutions. Sure, I think what Sophia said earlier about get us actually getting data that showed that people really feel like they don't know enough is so important, right? That they don't have enough knowledge on LGBTQA plus communities to do this job well uh, and to serve these communities one of the most simple things that we can do at an institutional level is provide education, right? Access to education around LGBTQA plus identities, topics, um, themes, uh, ways to implement um, LGBTQA plus identities in the curriculum. We've already talked a lot about chosen names and pronouns. Um, again, curriculum is super important. Um, it's important for schools to support openly LGBTQA plus uh, faculties, staff, administrators, right? Like it's really hard to be that non-binary administrator who's sitting with a student say, who's saying our you know, preferred name policy is terrible. And I'm like, yeah, you're telling me, right? You know, cause I, I know too, right? I'm experiencing it at a different level, but I also have that experience. Um, collect and examine data. Update policies and procedures. If y'all still have policy documentation that uses she or he, y'all come on with it. They is here, it is here to stay. It is also grammatically correct or grammatical, which is the grammatical way of saying that. Anyway, um, resource uh, program centers, offices, department roles in K through 12, you're not gonna usually have an LGBTQA plus resource center, but you may have a GSA right? What training, what resources are you providing, or excuse me, Gay Straight Alliance, uh, what training or resources are you providing for the staff who advise that organization, right? Um, reduce, remove barriers uh, for seeking and accessing mental health and academic and support services. 
and high schools offer training series to family members, guardians, supporters to help them better understand and support LGBTQA plus students, right? Um, working with families is incredibly important. I did some consulting work with one of the local high schools in DeWitt the, at, you know, close by Lansing, right? You know, because we wanted to do an LGBT 101 for parents because they need to know what was going on, right? They wanted to better understand their kids. This is important. Parents can make a huge difference in uh, the mental health outcomes of LGBTQA plus youth. Specifically, they tend to lower suicidal ideation rates quite a bit. So it's important for us to be educating all levels. That's great. Um, Chris, in the section I want you to kind of speak more about is around how our recommendations are specifically outlined for folks who are mental health practitioners. So we're kind of taking an institutional level mental health practitioners, and then we're going to get to the individual level next. So what are the recommendations in the framework and report? Sure. And I say this with a grain of salt because I'm not a mental health professional, um, but based on the report, which included many mental health um, professionals who contributed to the process. Um, but what I will say is one thing I think that can sometimes be challenging before I mention any of this feedback is that many mental health professionals do not provide, get received training related to LGBTQ plus experience. And if they did, it may have been many, many years ago. It's never ongoing, right? So I think one recommendation is really a commitment um, not only on an individual level, but on an organizational level for counseling and wellness centers to really continue ongoing learning that talks about the evolution of language, identities, and experiences of LGBTQ plus communities, specifically the intersectional lives of LGBTQ plus communities. Mm. I think ever, like more and more, um, I hear from counseling staff as well as from students directly about, you know, um, I identify as an LGBTQ plus person, but that experience is uniquely shaped by my cultural upbringing, my racial ethnic background, my immigrant status, my religiosity, and my faith background, which is a personal area of interest and passion, you know, things like that. And so I think it's really important to really think about the nuance of people's experience um, and to develop, you know, do case studies and develop skills um, around how to hold space for people. And it's okay to not know the answers. I think, um, as a, and I say this for all student affairs professionals, not only folks who do mental health work, but especially for mental health professionals, it's okay to not um, know the answers and to just hold space for someone um, and to, as Jesse said earlier, be on a journey with them, right? And provide the support that you can um, with the resources that you have available to you. Um, I do think um, some additional recommendations that came up in the report though include uh, institutional you know, accountability and care for LGBTQ student mental health broadly. Um, inclusive practices within counseling and wellness services, for, for example, things related to inclusive data in intake forms, asking for chosen name and pronouns in intake forms, and making sure you use those throughout your sessions. Um, sometimes it might require you using a different name and pronouns in your practice with a student that might be different than what's on a record, and that cannot always be easy, but it might be a part of creating that safe space. Um, and then, of course, um, things related to um, you know, being mindful of LGBTQ plus um, navigation, care coordination and navigation. Um, how do they access care? Um, how do we create entry points for these students um, into care via other, you know, resources on campus, um, maybe access via informal, you know, chats or um, things related to info sessions, outreach. Um, so it might require um, some unique strategies to engage these students. Um, because you know, they may be accessing services and care elsewhere that might not just yet be mental health services. 
Great. Thank you so much for, for that um, piece and more in the report for sure. Um, so Sophia, regardless of where you work in the institution, each individual can make a difference. Um, can you tell us about the recommendations in the report for individuals? Absolutely. And I strongly believe um, if you want to save a young person's life, you must do the work that it takes to let them know they matter. And you let them know they matter by educating yourself. So that's number one. Keep learning about LGBTQ plus needs, experiences, the intersectional identities, role model, inclusive language and behaviors. Um, show up at events so that you can show the presence. I always say you can't delegate presence. So showing up in whatever format that looks like is helpful. Um, mm -hmm. Advocate for policies, programs, resources. There are so many things happening. Again, I'm going to bring in legislation. I don't mean to be political, but I think you know when when young people see their own identities challenged in in real life, um, and they're mm -hmm. afraid. That fear translates over to all the other things we talked about: the anxiety, depression, and all the other feelings. And one thing that I love about the report, I'm going to be super biased here is that we placed links to all kinds of resources. We did not say the JED Foundation or the consortium were the only places. They are excellent places to get resources and connect. But there's also organizations who've been doing this for a really long time. GLSEN, GLAD, PFLAG, the Trevor Project, Tyler Clemente Foundation. The, there are LGBT centers that are local in some towns that are really working hard to connect young people and, and families to um, creating affirming environments. So there's, no shortage of organizations that are really trying to get this right. And when, when someone says, I just have no idea or I don't know, what you're really saying is I don't want to because there's a lot of information out there and maybe you don't know where to look. So we at least pointed you to a few different places that have glossaries. They have the way that language has changed over time. Um, if you want to, I mean, I have a 14 year old who can tell me anything about anything because they know how to Google it and look it up somehow. And, and somehow they always, have a pulse of where knowledge is and you know we didn't I didn't grow up with having at my fingertips easy information everywhere but this is the best possible time because it is a lot easier to access information so as an individual I will take no no further excuse than to say really do it, it the only thing left is is someone's thoughts and morals about how they feel or religious beliefs or any others and I would say um put those aside to focus on the person in front of you who needs the support and who needs to live and be here and thrive. So I'll leave it there. Love, love, love. Um, this, as you said, this report is a wealth of additional resources. So the links, I, I made a, a comment earlier about making photocopies and handing them out at a staff meeting, but then you would not have the live links. So you need to actually send the PDF around so that people can actually click and get access to all of the additional um, organizations that have been doing this work. So thank you for sharing all of those important recommendations. Uh, we're already out of time, probably over time. Uh, I am never uh, short-winded on my episodes of the podcast and people listen to me know. Um, so I'd love to hear final thoughts um, from folks. This episode, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. What are you thinking about pondering, questioning, troubling um, now, either as a result of this conversation or just in your work? Um, Chris, I'm gonna start with you. Um, hmm. Jumping off of 
kind of Sophia's point is I always wonder, um, or I always challenge folks, and I think about this myself all the time, what's in my sphere of influence? What do I have the agency and control? I have agency, we all do. Um, what is the agency and sphere of influence that I have to control or shift or use my power to be able to influence the kinds of change I want to see? And um, I think for me, when I think about this report, I think a lot about what can I do within the recommendations to be able to shift people's mental health and well-being, right? Um, so I think that for me is a question I hope other people can ask themselves and I'll continue to ask myself is what's my sphere of influence? Where does it exist? And how can I leverage my power to be able to you know, enact change? Love it. I love it. Sophia, final thoughts from you. Since this is student affairs now, I would say since I'm not in student affairs proper now, I still wanna give a love letter and a shout out to student affairs and higher education because you are the beacon of hope. I know that I, I have, I'm here because so many student affairs professionals took the time to get to know me, to affirm me as, as a human. And I was able to find my voice because they gave me more information or just let me know they cared. So. I, that's what I'll leave with, that at the end of the day, you don't have to know the exact language or the words. You just need to know that, you know, young people around you matter and you need to let them know that and, and signal mm -hmm. those things in, in many different ways. Love that. Thank you. Jesse. So I'm writing a paper right now um, about uh, the failure of higher education institutions to uh, collect accurate, complete, and inclusive data on uh, LGBTQA plus populations. Um, and this conversation has me thinking about specifically, you know, Dean Spade's theory of administrative violence, right? Which is a lot of what I'm using in uh, this paper. Um, and I'm thinking about the ways in which all of us can do what we can do within the area that we are responsible for to make our space more navigable, right? Exactly what Sophia and Chris were talking about. We all have the ability to make our space less harmful, more welcoming, less violent, more kind and loving. And I wish for all of us that we will um, treat the students that we work with and our colleagues um, with the utmost dignity and respect as all humans are deserving of. I am so grateful for everyone's time when we recorded this episode back in December. Thank you so much. Thank you for contributing to this conversation and this meaningful dialogue. I am also sending heartfelt appreciation to the dedicated behind the scenes work of Nat Ambrosi, our production assistant. Thanks, Nat. And let me give you a little bit more information about today's sponsors. Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person for students and professionals with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, please visit www.leadership.org slash virtual programs or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Today's other sponsor is Simplicity. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, 
student success and accessibility services. To learn more, please visit simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you are listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com and scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your name to our MailChimp list. While you're there, check out our archives. Thanks so much to today's sponsors, Simplicity and Leadership. And again, thank you to our three panelists for today's episode. I'm Heather Shea. Thanks to all of our listeners and everyone who's watching and listening. Make it count.